Hello and welcome back. It's been Yom and Rose and myself, Gedali Gutenberg of Mishpachal's Homefront, a wide-angle view of Israel's biggest conflict of generation. Leben Yomin. Hello, Gedali, and it seems like the angle is getting wider as there are more bombing attacks from Lebanon aimed towards the north, especially Kirat Shmona, which was a city that was almost devastated in the Second Lebanon War many years ago. So things are getting more dangerous as we sit, and we have to keep a watch on the northern front probably uh, just as closely as on Gaza right now. Although it happens to be those who follow the news are basically starting to get an in-depth knowledge of the various neighborhoods of Gaza. People can quote their Shujaya and their all different ones and the Fanunis pretty accurately, but we don't know what's going on in the north. And as you say, there's a massive army over there, Hezbollah, waiting right at the border. And the question is, will threat of IDF action, which is being heavily pushed by Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, be enough to persuade the Hezbollah and its leaders that it's time to shift and the danger is very real. The IDF is going to destroy them as it's in the post grandia of Hamas and they better shift up many miles to the north. Do you see that happening, Benjamin? Gadalia, to me, this is a diplomatic stunt that Israel is pulling. I don't think they have any confidence at all that either Hezbollah will voluntarily leave the southern part of Lebanon on their own, uh, nor is there much of a chance that there's any sort of international body whether it's UNIFIL or whether it's the U.S. and some sort of global force that could push them out. But they're playing the game. They don't want to go out and attack, and they don't want to start a new war on a second front. On the other hand, they want to make it clear that our patience is limited. So this is the approach. The approach is let's make it look like we want a, a diplomatic solution. Let's play for time. But eventually, my fear is that the things are going to blow up on the northern front, and it's only a matter of time. Benjamin, the model that is being looked at is the kind of like in 2003, under the very real threat of the Bush administration invading Iran, it was then the only time that Tehran actually paused its nuclear technology development to drive. And so when an entity feels that, no, this is not a bluff, this is really, really serious, there can be a chance that things can be achieved. But I simply don't believe that Hezbollah is an organization, we have to remember, is far better armed and than many countries. It has got a fighting force that has been blooded and toughened by years of experience in Syria. There's no way in my mind that any amount of bluff as a threat is going to get them to withdraw. And we know on the other side that the Israeli citizens tens of thousands away from their homes and they're sitting mouldering in hotels and whatever is up and down the country. No country can afford that. Those two dynamics taken together mean that things aren't looking so good because eventually it might have to be sooner rather than later that will have to be a clash. And that is very serious. That is not good news, Binyam. but let me go on to something which I think a form of called a tragic but uplifting story that's been unfolding here of Israel the last day, which is the bravery of one. Jewish mother, Iris Chaim, whose son, Yotam, was the gingerhead man who was one of those three hostages who was tragically shot just before Shabbos last week by IDF forces. And Benjamin, I'd just like to quote what she did. Think of her pain. She would have been perfectly understandable had she lashed out at the IDF and the soldiers who did this. And instead, she sent a message to the battalion who were involved. And she said this following thing, hello to the 7th, 28th Battalion, the 7th Brigade of the 17th Battalion, says Iris Chaim, I'm Yotan's mother. I wanted to tell you that I love you very much and hope you hear from afar. Know that everything that happened is not at all your fault and no one's fault except Hamas and Vizifrov. And he, she continued, I ask you to take care of yourself and think all the time that you're doing the best thing in the world that can happen, that can help us 
as the people of Israel. You'll need your healthy and don't hesitate for a moment if you see a terrorist. Don't think you killed a kidnapper on purpose. You need to protect yourself because that's the only way you can protect us. And Benjamin, I'm so, I think along with everyone in this country, many people overseas as well, so moved by those words. Number one, great Rahmanus and Abbas Yisrael and strength of character this woman and her family have. You know, so alongside the horror, there's a moment of Mika Amcha Yisrael. Where else do you see something like this, this greatness of character? A second point I'd say, look, we've got to listen to what she says. She says, don't hesitate for a moment. Do you think there's a terrorist? And this is a rebuke to all the armchair critics and the, you know, the Twitter commentators and the media in Israel and abroad who've said that the IDF has painted it as a trigger-happy army and they don't keep the laws of war, the hilltop youth, etc. We must remember, as she's saying, the IDF is operating there in impossible conditions. Can you blame soldiers for being jumpy? There was a report of a terrorist in the last few days who came out under a white flag. And when the soldiers called him to come out, he opened fire and soldiers were injured. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it's certainly could be true given the very, very tense battlefield condition of this. So when you know, when I say, let's listen to Iris Chaim, let's not fall for this public shaming of the IDF. Rodalia, Iris Chaim is a very brave woman, a very patriotic woman. To make this kind of sacrifice and to have lost a son like this and to be as gracious as uh, she was and has been is something that's unique and it points to a tremendous uh, amount of character that she has. I do want to add that a couple of weeks prior to this, she was interviewed on a couple of the Israeli television news channels, and uh, she was very upset about one of the meetings that was held between parents whose uh, children have been kidnapped and the war cabinet in Tel Aviv, where she said that uh, many of the parents were very rude to the members of the war cabinet. They wouldn't let them get a word in edgewise. They came with accusations. And again, we can't judge. We have to try to understand how other people feel. Not everyone is going to react the same way that she did, but she was terrified by what she heard. And she said that, you know, this has to stop. You have to give other people a chance to speak. You have to uh, hear the other person's point of view. And if you don't, then we could just end up with demonstrations that are much worse than what we saw in the so-called Kaplan demonstrations against the judicial reform. So not only has she shown her bravery and her courage uh, at a time of great loss, but uh, she also gave a very wise warning to the rest of the public. I want to touch on the second point that you made about the pressure on Israel to keep things as humanitarian as possible. I'm just going to note a couple of items from a report I got overnight from JINSA, Washington, D.C. think tank that supports Israel's security in many ways. They mentioned a couple of things that on December 18th, which is three days ago, that Israel permitted not only humanitarian goods to enter Gaza, but they even permitted commercial goods for the private sector to enter Gaza so that the other people can do business there also. Since the war began, they mentioned that Israel has facilitated the entry of over 70,000 tons of aid into Gaza. They don't have a report on how much of that was hijacked by Hamas or or how much was uh, pilfered by uh, Gazans who wanted to try to grab before uh, Hamas could get to it. You know what I think at this point is pretty clear that there's no neat division between Hamas and Gaza. That means hijacked by Hamas means all going to the Gaza population is one and the same at the moment. Absolutely. And I want to mention one more point that there's talk about, you mentioned uh, some of the names in Gaza. So there's another neighborhood now called Al-Mawasi. That's uh, the safe zone Never heard of that in one. southwestern Gaza. 
And what Jensen noted is that in modern combat history, the establishment of a safe zone by a combatant party, meaning in this case, Israel, rather than a third party like the Red Cross or the UN is virtually unprecedented. According to the UN, only 13 such zones have been established worldwide in any conflict zone since 1949. And even the Red Cross noted that for the most part, these zones did not arise from the initiative of the parties to the conflict, but by virtue of a third party. And here we're doing this. With one hand, we're fighting Gaza with all our might. And with the other hand, we're trying to help feed them and sustain them. This is absolutely unprecedented. And anyone who hears claims that we're starving the Gazans or that they were killing Gazans indiscriminately or bombing indiscriminately, this is just completely wrong. And uh, people need to know uh, these facts and they need to know what we are doing in order to try to preserve life while at the same time trying to preserve our own. Vinyawin, I just want to circle back to what you were saying about the conditions in which IDF soldiers are operating there. And that leads me to a scene that happened in the cabinet this week in which Miri Regev, who's among government ministers, had a very fierce exchange with Chief of Staff Herzl Levy. And she was asking him about the hunt for Hamas leaders, which is underway, and how long that could take. And what he responded was, he's saying was that it took the U.S. 10 years to find Osama bin Laden to kill him. And to which she responded, we simply don't have 10 years. And that exchange was to me indicative of something very important, which is that, as I said, the infantry have been showing tremendous bravery and engaging in this absolutely fierce combat and killing and bleeding out Gaza from hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands, but hundreds and thousands of Hamas terrorists. There's many, many thousands more to go. And they are doing the job. What is not happening and the IDF is desperately searching for is some game-changing breakthrough of a different nature, which if you look into Israel's military history, you had the sort of the, the stunning opening strike of 1967, which set the tone, which guaranteed victory then. But if you look into the most similar war, which is Israel fighting back on the back foot on Yom Kippur, which it, at that point won the war, was the existence of a game-changing maneuver crossing the canal to two Egyptian armies. And the IDF senior command is aware that it's not producing anything like a game-changing mover. And that's why the hunt for these senior Hamas terrorists and the leadership is so critical, because there's a feeling that, that lower down, there's a meat grinder conflict. The IDF superior force and the bravery of the soldiers are telling, and they get breaking through and killing and destroying Hamas's foot soldiers and that, that, that side of the army. But it needs to be matched by something more imaginative, higher up the chain. And there's Ulitsi up the Shmaipur and hasn't been produced so far because the idea that we can end the conflict, whether it's a month or two months, with Yichin Sinwa and the senior team still intact is laughable. This cannot be 10 years. It's not comparable at all to the situation of the US with Bin Laden, which is far away. This is critical. They have to be captured or killed. And that has to happen. I'm surprised Hersi Alevi made that comparison because I don't see how you could possibly compare bin Laden hiding out for 10 years in the mountainous terrain of either Pakistan or Afghanistan or wherever he was. And he probably moved around quite a bit during that time where we had uh, no boots on the ground and uh, where there are many treacherous uh, military forces there that you never knew whose side they were on. And uh, the U.S. was trying to search for them and compare that to Gaza, which is a small strip of land in which Israel now has military control. The real problem is 
and I'm sorry this wasn't addressed, is that, again, this is the whole humanitarian thing. We were able to move the Gazans from the north to the south and clean up the north. Israel has almost total control militarily of the northern part of the Gaza Strip. The problem is that the northern part of the Gaza Strip is destroyed as far as it's not livable anymore. So instead of being able to move uh, the Gazans in the south back up north, which we can't because there's no place for them to live, or send them to Egypt, at least temporarily, which uh, Egypt refuses to do and uh, the U.S. refuses to pressure them to do it. So we're stuck. We're stuck with uh, all the civilians in Gaza. The heads of Hamas, Sinwar, and uh, Mohammed Def are hiding out there. But there's been reports in the Israeli press that we've been on to them. We almost captured Sinwar a couple of times, but he was able to run away and he's, he's able to hide in these safe zones that we've created for the Gazans in uh, the southern part of the Strip. And this is going to take some more time to clean up. And this is where the U.S., I believe, needs to have a little bit more patience. And instead of telling us to wrap things up, they need to give us the amount of time that we need in order to do what needs to be done. You know, it's Lloyd Austin came here this week, the Secretary of Defense in the U.S., and he said, I'm not setting any deadlines for the Israeli operation. But then a couple of days later, so you have either Jake Sullivan or uh, Brent McGirt or Kirby the White House spokesman saying, fellas, let's wrap things up sometime in January. Not another wink, wink. Yeah, exactly. You can't talk out of both sides of your mouth. You can't say we're not giving Israel a deadline and then a day later say, oh, by the way, we expect this to be done sometime in the next few weeks. This is going to take more time. Hamas spent 15 years building this underground infrastructure. And I don't think it'll take 15 years to root it out and defeat it, but it could take 15 more weeks, it could take 15 more months. And Israel just has to, if they feel they need to ask for that amount of time from the U.S., and they need to do so. And if not, they need to politely say, no, this is a defense of our people. And take a look at what you did in Mosul. And in Mosul, nobody was bombing you from... Very far away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nobody was bombing U.S. territory. Whereas here, there's rocket attacks every day. You know, think about it. Benjamin, I'd like to just, I don't know whether it counts as good news. Normally our good news slot is reserved for something more human than uh, the production of bunker buster bombs. But I'm going to go with that anyway, because for me, the following counts as good news, which is that the defense ministry has indicated that for the first time, it's going to start boosting and trying to drastically ramp up the production of munitions needed for the Air Force in Israel. And that is because of two things, because there's this global competition now for these weapons. It's basically a question who's going to get the munitions at any given time. It's going to be Ukraine or Israel. That's not a state of affairs that Israel can afford to let exist. Or Ukraine for that matter. Neither can Ukraine, although Ukraine are not able to, I saw separate report that they were looking over the long term to turn themselves into a massive forward manufacturing base for Western contractors. They could take years if it ever happens, simply because you had to create these industries from scratch, whereas Israel has high-tech industries, defense industries. And in fact, the laughable thing is that the U.S. is able to hold up shipments of Israeli technology, for example, which is to turn dumb bombs into smart bombs, the guidance kits, is actually Israeli technology. But because of the term of the agreement attached to the military aid package that America gives, which are really a way of boosting outputs and uh, providing work for America's defense manufacturing base, it means that the, the White House can always hold up and hold it over the, the Israelis' heads. But if you don't listen to us, we can simply stop the next shipment of smart bombs, which is ridiculous. These things can and should be produced in Israel. And that's what's going to be happening 
now that the Defense Ministry's reports aims to reduce local production of the chemical agents necessary for bomb manufacturing, which is going to cost billions. And already, it's interesting that Israel already manufactures its own artillery and tank shells through IMI systems. And the point being, with you that this is not vastly advanced technology. There are some things that only the U.S. can produce, like these enormous bunker busters needed to go after the, the, the Iranian nuclear program. But that's not what we're talking about over here. We're talking about guidance kits, we're talking about big bombs, talking about things that can and should be produced locally. And did you know, Benjamin, fun fact, or not so fun fact, that the Tamir interceptors used by the Iron Dome system are actually produced, many of them, in America which is absolutely ridiculous. We should not be reliant on 10 batteries over Israel, which we have in 20 or 30 of them with huge numbers of missiles. And that would enable us to go up to much more safely to go up to Hezbollah because you'd neutralize the major threat to be able to overwhelm the systems. In these grim times, I count this as a good news that someone somewhere has woken up and said, we're going to get the American pressure off our back. We're going to get out of the global supply system competition. We're going to produce these over here. If we can produce Bisley in Stirot, we can fill a few shells with gunpowder over in Jochen Amersfoort. And so that's my good news for the week. Anything for the listeners, uh, Benjamin, this at your end? I'm going to just basically piggyback on what you said. And my readers know, and for many years I've been writing about the importance of Israel reducing its reliance on the U.S. for military aid. In the next three years or so, around 2027, 2028, the U.S. and Israel is due to renegotiate these 10-year memorandums of understanding that they signed that provides U.S. military aid to Israel. Uh, this needs to be totally restructured in the next agreement. It needs to be totally restructured so that Israel is free to produce what they need to produce and buy from who they want to, and that any U.S. aid, so to speak, what to go into joint projects rather than the strings attached type of aid that we've been receiving up till now. In the recent budget conflict that we had, the Knesset finally passed the special war allocation for at least 2023, for what remains of 2023. But the whole argument was about the 14 billion shekels of uh, coalition funds and whether they should be given to uh, the coalition and handed out as agreed to before this whole war started, or whether it would just go toward the war aims. Most of it is going to war aims, but when you think about it, 14 billion shekels is exactly the 3.8 billion in dollars that the U.S. provides to Israel every year. So if we could work this out in a matter of a couple of weeks, albeit under emergency circumstances, that we could figure out how to reallocate 14 billion shekels to war needs, then there's no reason why we can't do it long term when it comes to U.S. aid and get off the schnorr, if you will, and that we could have more independence of action so that we can do what we need to do. Because we don't know what our defense needs are going to be in future years, whether they'll be greater, or whether they'll be lesser, but we need to be able to make our own decisions and to act accordingly. But I'm going to summarize that in your powerful words for everyone over here is that the call of the hour is to stop schnorring. So let that ringing statement accompany all of us listeners alike over the hopefully peaceful shabbos for us.